This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Now, my topic this evening is how Aristotle benefits science today, or rather how Aristotle can benefit scientists and the scientific method if, if his philosophy is properly understood and deployed in the scientific enterprise. Why should we be interested, though, in this topic at all? Why come and spend your Friday evening even considering it? Why think that Aristotle has anything to say to us today, 2,300 plus years after he died? Even the building is arguing against us. <laughs> there are, after all, people like the popular physicist Lawrence Krauss who think that philosophy is a waste of time and that people like Aristotle only hold our interest as historical figures, but not as people who have meaningful things to say to us today. Now, I think the presumptions behind this view are, of course, problematic. And that being said, it is common enough in the sciences and among scientists to warrant serious consideration. So I'm going to begin tonight by trying to pinpoint how it is possible for Aristotle to help us and then outline some specifics of what we can take with us from Aristotle back into the lab and into the classroom. So to begin to respond to the philosophical skepticism of some scientists, and especially the skepticism toward Aristotle, we need to recognize one very important fact, that there is a crisis in science today. Among others, the theologian Paul Schurz points out in his book, Science and Christian Ethics, that there is a growing problem with failure to be able to reproduce experimental results that are printed in accepted literature. There are a number of instances, of course, famous ones where top journals have had to retract explosive articles because the papers were proven to be, to have serious flaws. And, but even if we exclude those articles, there are plenty in some of the big journals where people have difficulty replicating the experimental results. And so this is a problem. And, but this problem, and while it has been with us for a while, it has taken state center stage in the past year and a half, uh, in part because of the constant and often inept press coverage of the COVID research. As a result of this, people have begun to doubt the truth of scientific research. And scientists understandably seek to defend their field in light of these criticisms. But in the process, they often try to paper over the real issues that still bubble beneath the surface of the discipline itself. It's an understandable motivation, but not helpful. So some will say that, of course, these problems are exacerbated and driven by politics. And there is certainly some truth to that claim. But I will say that the intense politicization is only possible because of the deeper crisis that already exists. And this is a crisis relating, of course, to the truth value of our scientific conclusions. The possibility of a politically motivated uh, science suggests that science is not giving us the kinds of conclusions that we seek. And so some will reach for political solutions to fill those gaps. So we have to wonder, where do those gaps appear? Well, have you ever noticed right, that whenever science, scientific discoveries are reported in the media, it's always reported as something revolutionary? Now, of course, sometimes this is just media exaggeration used to, explain, used to help explain why people are so excited about a certain discovery. But sometimes they really do mean this, that there is a revolution in the way that we approach and understand science there's a revolution in our theories. And these were theories that were previously thought to be true and secure, but yet are now disproven in one way or another. Now, this doesn't happen often, but if it does happen even a couple times in a person's lifetime, then we might wonder, well, why should we then believe that what science is saying is definitively true? This is not just a problem of public perception, but it's a natural result of some theories about scientific progress and development. Theories that I won't really go into, but they're out there. 
Now, with that in mind, I want to note two things before I continue uh, with this talk. The first is that I'm only hinting at a whole host of issues. You know, I'm not going to give you a whole presentation on, on where these issues are and how you can find them. There are plenty of other people who can talk to you about that. And there are many ways to fix these deep issues that lurk in the background, some of which philosophy can fix, others which require the help of other disciplines. So I'm not proposing this evening a solution that will resolve all the tensions in science today. Second, I mention these problems not to make us doubt science. In fact, I, I, I have, as it happens, I have a great deal of confidence in the value of modern science and its ability to penetrate the mysteries of the world that we live in. So don't take this as me proposing that we should junk science or even junk the scientific method. Rather, what I'm going to be proposing this evening is that one thing that can help us to restore confidence in the value of our scientific research is to reclaim some of the Aristotelian principles that were at the foundation of the modern scientific project in the first place. What do I mean by this? And then what am I actually proposing? Well, to begin with, let me say that what I'm not saying so first, I am not saying that when we take Aristotelian philosophy up, we should not take up theories about the universe that have been proven wrong. So I'm not saying that we should accept a geocentric view of the universe. I'm not suggesting that we return to a theory of elements consisting of earth, air, fire, and water, as fascinating as that might be. I'm not suggesting that we consider the heavens to be made of a different material than that of the earth. I'm not suggesting that we go back to thinking that the heart is the seat of the intellect and the brain just a large air conditioner that cools the body. I'm not suggesting that we return to a view of human generation whereby women are imperfectly formed men. All of these are considerations that Aristotle, conclusions that Aristotle held and have been proven wrong by later science. What I'm proposing about bringing Aristotle back into the process of science does not include bringing those conclusions back into it. So another thing that I'm not doing this evening is I am not suggesting that Aristotle's philosophy in nature will help us to make better technology or more accurate predictions. That may occur if we do this successfully, but it's irrelevant to the project that I have this evening, which will become apparent in a moment, I believe. So then what I am going to be doing is to show that how Aristotle's natural philosophy can benefit science by providing it with a better epistemic framework for the project of science. Now, what do I mean here? Here, I'm going to quote one of my Dominican confreres who, has, who passed away a number of years ago. His name was Father William Augustine Wallace. And this comes from his book, The Modeling of Nature, which if you haven't read it, I highly suggest it. In that book, Father Wallace argues that the model of Aristotelian science is perfectly compatible with contemporary science. But he makes the following clarifying remark. He says that the modeling here suggested is not a kind of model one might construct to predict the weather or to make an economic forecast or otherwise to, to, to achieve a practical result. Rather, the intent of this uh, Aristotelian model is a more speculative, theoretical, at ground, epistemological, what might be termed epistemic model. The meaning that is conveyed by the Greek episteme, Aristotle's term for knowledge, that is genuine knowledge, which is differentiated from opinion. When, opinion, when individuals have an opinion on a matter, they think they know, and yet they do not really know something for they allow that the contrary of what they think to be true might also be true. But when someone knows scientifically, and for Aristotle, epistemic knowledge is the same as scientific knowledge, they are certain of the object of their knowledge, and this precisely because they know it through the cause that makes it to be as it is. So that's a quote from Father Wallace's Modeling of Nature. The point that Father Wallace is making is that science produces a lot of really good and interesting results, but it has a problem with showing us why its conclusions are certain. 
Too much of science seems to be like, quote, justified true belief to give a contemporary philosophical definition of knowledge. Aristotelian science, in, on the other hand, is a knowledge of things where what we think cannot be otherwise, and therefore, because it cannot be otherwise, is certain. Now what science needs is some philosophical help to bring, to bring our empirical observations and experimentation, which provide us with credible opinions to certitude about truths in the world that we live in. And Father Wallace and I think that Aristotle's notion of science and scientific reasoning can fill in the void that is causing so much trouble today. Now there are many ways in which philosophy, Aristotle's philosophy of nature can do this, but I'm gonna highlight four this evening so that we're not here forever. In fact, I teach an entire course on this at, our, at the House of Studies. So if you want, come and take my cosmology course. So the four ways are, I'm going, we're going to see how Aristotle can help to provide science with one, a new vision of the value of science, two, help it to improve its epistemic quality, and then revise notions, revise a couple notions, so the third one is causation, and also revise the notion of nature as we apply it to scientific explanation. So these are the four things I'm going to look at this evening. So to begin, let's look at how Aristotle sees the value of science. You know, we tend to think that the value of science is uncontroversial. After all, science has improved our lives immensely. But it is the idea that science has value because it improves our lives that I want to push back on. I say this not because I doubt that science has improved our lives. I think it has improved our lives immensely. But I want to say that science is not valuable because it improves our lives. I think it is a mistake to value science only because it is useful and provides us with useful and fun tools. This idea of the value of science goes back at least to Rene Descartes, who famously says the following in his Discourse on Method, regarding his new philosophy and also his new proposal for science. He says, for these notions, that is his novel philosophy, made me see that it is possible to arrive at knowledge that would be very useful in life and that in place of that speculative philosophy taught in the schools, it is possible to find a practical philosophy by means of which knowing the force and the actions of fire, water, air, the stars, the heavens, and all the other bodies that surround us, just as distinctly as we know the various skills of our craftsmen, we might be able in the same way to use them for all the purposes for which they are appropriate and thus render ourselves, as it were, masters and possessors of nature." End quote. Descartes here proclaims that the science of the scholastic philosophy is unimportant because it is not productive, it's not useful. And so he proposes a new approach to science whose purpose and value is to improve the lives in physical and material ways. And he points especially to the need of better medicine and the designing of machines to make life easier. Now, while this change in perspective has helped to lead to the creation of many marvelous machines that do, in fact, make our lives easier, nevertheless, it restricts, I think, the project of science too much. Forgoing the search for certitude in our knowledge and seeking only to produce stuff. It would be like saying that the highest of all the sciences is in fact engineering, which applies science to the production of various things. And now engineering is of course, again, wonderful. Don't get me wrong. Some days I wish I was an engineer because you get to blow things up all the time. <laughs> but I do think that scientists and engineers have different purposes. And I think that most scientists would and should balk at the idea that they, are only, that they exist only to serve engineering, which would be true if Descartes' vision of science 
is the best we can aim at. For in the end, the view that science, the view of science that subordinates it to production, subordinates it to engineering, doesn't care if science gives us the truth of reality. It only cares that, that they make our lives easier, longer, and more pleasant. That becomes the only value of science on this view. And if that is the only value of science, then we can ask, if we do science for the purposes of producing things in engineering, why not do science for the purposes of producing things in politics? Even if the subordination, see it's a scary thing, obviously. <laughs> Even if the subordination of science to engineering is not repugnant to a science, that last question should be. The last question should be. And our gut reaction against what it intimates should remind us that the purpose and value of science is more than just what, we, what it can do for me. Otherwise, we really would have no good answer to why science should not be put to political ends, regardless of, the, uh, of, of what those ends are. What Aristotle reminds us, and what he says is the true purpose of science, is that it is not to produce something, but to understand the world in which we live, and that the study of the world has a value all its own, regardless of what, of what it produces. It may turn out, and it usually does turn out, that when we understand the world correctly, we can then build really cool stuff from it. In this way, our productivity can act as an important confirmation of the things that we study. Nevertheless, this fact need not be the reason why scientists go about studying the world. Instead, scientists are motivated to, the study, to study the world for the same reasons that philosophers are, because it's wonderful, and there's a joy just in unlocking its secrets. So with this in mind, then, Aristotle helpfully distinguishes for us two reasons why we might give something of value as an activity. He does this by distinguishing two different types of goods. In his philosophy, he says there are useful goods and there are honest goods. A useful good is a thing that we consider to be good simply because it helps us to do something else. But honest goods are good or desirable in and of themselves. We need no other reason to seek them other than that they are. And so Aristotle thinks of science as an honest good, not a useful good. And I think that if we were to be intentional about making our science today about an, the honest good of understanding the world rather than the useful good of producing things, we would have a, a, a better science, honestly. And so this important facet of Aristotle's philosophy, because it, it, this is, well, this is an important facet of Aristotle's philosophy because it makes a search for truth center, the center of science, not the, not the search for productive value. And if the search for truth is the center of science and not what science can do for me or for society, then science will be less susceptible to politicization. Because if the value of science comes just from knowing the truth, then we will seek that no matter what other people think. And so if we pursue science with a pure heart, then we will not want to politicize it in any way. Now, of course, there are many reasons why people might not do science with a pure heart, and that's an admittedly difficult topic to talk about. But that's an ethical topic, and it's not the topic that I have for this evening. We could talk about that, but then again, you know, we have other classes at the House of Studies for that too, and you can probably hear more about this on the Thomistic Institute website. So I'm going to move on to my next point this evening. So I think the second way that Aristotle can benefit science today is to improve the epistemic quality of science. That is to help us to see when a scientific proposition and conclusion is certain and cannot be otherwise 
and when it is something that is still in the realm of opinion or even credible opinion. How can Aristotle do this? Well, first of all, recognize that the sources of our lack of confidence have a partial origin in philosophical concerns, not in strictly scientific concerns. And so our response to those problems in science, to those philosophical problems in science, should be a philosophical one. Now, Father Wallace in his book points out that the skepticism of the philosopher David Hume and the extreme agnosticism about knowledge found in the philosophy of Immanuel Kant have, among others, an outsized influence on the way we interpret philosophical data and even how we set up the tools for analyzing scientific data. Both Kant and Hume doubted that we can actually get at the way the world is, and that we can only understand how we perceive the world. And so this means that for them, science is at best justified true belief, rather than certain knowledge about the way that things in the world really are and cannot be otherwise. So there's a lot to talk about here, and I have just kind of blown over a whole bunch of historical complications and by generalizing in that way. And so, um, I, but because of the nature of this talk, I necessarily have to be brief. But I will say that if we have Aristotle's philosophy as a ground for our science, rather than the philosophy's stemming from human Kant, we will be able to have a greater confidence that our minds really do have access to the nature of things in themselves. And if we begin with that perspective, then we can begin to adopt Aristotle's method of scientific reasoning, which is constructed precisely to give us certitude about our conclusions. So this, and this reasoning, of course, is the first um, complete system of logic. I mean, think about this. Aristotle is the first Western philosopher to develop a complete system of logic. And it was developed precisely because Aristotle wanted to give us certitude about our conclusions and, and our arguments. And this, that the center of his theory is, of course, the famous logic of the syllogism. And the syllogism is often uh, framed in contemporary discourse as, as being reducible or translatable into a kind of mathematical formal logic. However, I would say that Aristotle's syllogistic does have an important scientific quality that is missing in most mathematical logics. It's what those of us in the Thomist tradition call a material logic. Material logic is a logic about the content of our reasoning. Some people will refer to it as a term logic, but I think it's a little bit more than just a logic about terms. It's a logic about the content or the meaning in those terms. Um, and it teaches us how to observe necessary relations between concepts and contents. Now, um, there is a lot of work that, that modern modal logic has done to restore what was lost when the mathematical logicians abandoned material logic. But I think that even modal logic is still is incomplete and there needs to be a lot of work to bring back a focus on intention and on content in our logical arguments. Because material, whereas formal logic is about the validity of an argument, material logic is about the soundness of an argument. And that's just as, if not more important, when we want to be certain about our conclusions. Now, if you don't understand much of what I just said, that's fine. Right? The key point is that much of scientific reasoning um, that links, that is used to link scientific models with experiments, does not make use of Aristotle's syllogistic or his material logic. Instead, it makes use of a hypothetical deductive reasoning whose only requirement is a coherence and is therefore content neutral. While this methodology can be super helpful in the initial stages of an investigation and in the development of contingent models and experiments, it's flawed, it's flawed in, in that it is impossible to use this model method alone to come to certainty about our conclusions. After all, if the model itself is content neutral, then the content we plug into a model can be arbitrary. Not always, it can be. 
And this is a big problem when it comes to developing experiments. In order for our experiments to prove the truth of a model, we need to have a necessary connection between three things, between the way things are in the world, the content of the model, and the content of the experiment. And without this, right, you have the danger of creating experiments that have deep confirmation biases written into them. So what Aristotelian material logic and syllogistic can add is a way of resolving some of the arbitrariness of our content in the development of the overarching models in scientific, uh, in scientific structures by giving us a logic that can guarantee that, the, that certain conclusions cannot be otherwise. How this is done is complicated, and there's a lot of argument there. There are a lot of people, even people friendly to the Thomas tradition, who will object to some of the things I just said. So full disclosure, not everybody's going to agree with what I'm saying. But I do suggest that if you want to at least get a basis in this, it is, again, helpful to look back at Father Wallace's book, The Modeling of Nature, especially the second half, to see one place where we can at least begin. And if you really want to go into depth, you can look at uh, John, uh, John of St. Thomas's first book on, the, on logic, so in his Cursus Philosophicus. So there's much more to say. That's all I'm going to say about this tonight. Um, and I'm going to say, but I'm going to point to the fact that Aristotle does have some interesting tools that I can think that I think can be super helpful in enhancing our certitude about about conclusions in scientific research. All right. So now I want to move on to my third point, which is that I think the Aristotelian notion of causation in the full range of that needs to be brought back into. Um, scientific research. So as I noted in passing a few minutes ago, Hume's empiricism has done a lot to erode our confidence in our ability to know, to know the real world. And I, I, I focus in on Hume in particular because with him we see an important denial of the classical notion of a cause. There are many reasons for that leading up to Hume and there are many developments of it after Hume, but Hume is at least a classical place in his writings to see a shift in our understanding of the notion of a cause. Because classically, at least in the Aristotelian and scholastic tradition, a cause is a principle that explains the existence of something. But Hume, on the other hand, says that causation is just the constant conjunction between two ideas. When I see X, I always see Y following after, and so I say that X causes Y because X is always, always comes be with or before Y. The problem with Hume's notion of causality is that it is really just about our perception. It remains possible that something we have not yet experienced, not yet perceived, will change our understanding of this cause and effect relationship. So human causation makes cause and effect relationships on the best models to be statistical relations and may not, in fact, imply any real dependence of an effect upon a cause between the things we are observing and measuring. Aristotle's notion of causation, on the other hand, aims at discovering those necessary links between cause and effect, necessary links that are impossible to be overturned by any sort of observation because, they, because essentially you get the connections right. So Aristotle understands that causes, that causes make things to exist. And because causes make things to, be, to exist, when we understand them, we have an explanation for why those effects exist. Now Aristotle famously then, presents us with a theory of causation that has four kinds of causes, material causes, formal causes, efficient causes, and final causes. We can spend a whole lecture talking about that. I'm just going to mention the names of them. And then if you have more questions, we can talk about that at another point. But mo most modern theories of causation generally only consider what Aristotle calls, calls an efficient cause, something that makes something else. 
Like the sculptor is the efficient cause of the sculpture. And in, usually they do this by creating a, a, a sequence of events or some sort of mechanism to explain why certain things come before and cause certain other things. But this is not enough to tell us why. Just the fact that you describe the mechanisms and order them properly is not really enough to tell us why those mechanisms work or why they exist. By introducing an examination of the matter, what makes it up, and the form, the essences of things, um, Aristotle has a way of explaining why efficient causes have a necessary connection to their effects, and therefore why certain mechanisms have necessary features about them. This is because together, the matter and the form describe what something is. And among the aspects of what something is are what it can do and what can be done to it. Now, in actuality, of course, there are ways of modeling this in science. And they do try to aim at describing the form and the matter of things. However, the problem is that those same models still articulate form and matter in terms of mechanistic relations. Uh, rather than in terms of the way that something is and in terms of its essential properties. And this brings problems with it. Now there is at least, probably at least one, if not a couple of subfields in philosophy, but I'm going to focus in on one, that does try to um, respond to some of these real problems in scientific models by providing a more Aristotelian, though not complete Aristotelian, framework for understanding causation. This is a group of people who work in what we call powers ontology. In powers ontology, some these philosophers do try to introduce some Aristotelianism into scientific explanation. And usually powers ontology is, is used to try to explain um, what we understand to be the laws of nature. They don't think the laws of nature exist, but that there are powers that then give rise to our understanding of laws of nature, depending on and then depending on who you are, it will depend on how you cash that out. But now part of the problem here is that their interpretation requires what we call a functional interpretation of Aristotle, which I think is just false and, and very easy to prove that it's false. Um, and so as a result, there are many problems associated with powers ontology, both in the way that they understand Aristotle and the way that they understand the laws of nature and other things that they try to explain. Yet despite these flaws, I think that their attempts are showing some real fruit and they're moving in the right direction. But I would say that what is good about them is what comes from Aristotle. And what is, what is problematic is that they're not Aristotelian enough. So I think that building upon the work that these power ontologists and others would, is, is important but it can only be done by introducing a more robust Aristotelianism into our, into our models. And in particular, I think that one of the huge missing gaps is Aristotle's notion of act impotency. But again, that's for another time. The point is, there are people trying to do this work already, and they're using Aristotle, so that it, it it can only, it, and it can only help things, I believe, to introduce more Aristotle in the appropriate way into these arguments and discussions. Lastly, um, this leads to my last point, because I focused in that last section on the use of knowing what something is in its form and its matter. And this points to the idea of nature in Aristotle. Now, science, of course, aims to study the natural world. Yet because of the loss of the classical notions of causation, there has also been a loss of the fuller notion of what it means to have a nature. Too often, and too often as a result of this, scientific conceptions of nature are limited in scope because scientific models claim only to describe mechanisms of the natural world at large, but they do not get at the unchanging essences that make those mechanisms work. For the understanding of the formal and material causes that I discussed a moment ago 
just is an understanding of the nature of that substance. And what this means is that nature in Aristotle is a cause. Therefore, nature is a concept that is central for understanding why things are the way they are and why they act in the way that they act. And I want to also highlight, too, right, that an understanding of a nature on this view is an understanding of something that is unchanging. It's unchanging feature of a thing. This is often perceived as a weakness of the Aristotelian position. Because many will, because A, you know, you can be wrong sometimes about these features if you don't reason correctly. And sometimes, and people will think that, and especially, this was especially true of thinkers um, in the early modern period, um, and then as a result of that, people who followed after them, they tend to think of nature in Aristotle as something that is really stale and inert, and not really a helpful feature of a model of science. But from a proper perspective, from a proper Aristotelian perspective, nature is not really stale and inert, even if it is permanent, even if it is stable and unchanging. It is stable in the way that a set of constraints are stable, in the way that, for instance, constants in our, in our um, systems of, of science, in our models of science, are able to be stable and directive. You know, we think of things like the speed of light or Planck's constant as being unchanging, but we don't think of them as inert and hindering of our science. We actually see them as dynamic features of a model that help us to understand how the physical universe operates. And so I think that the idea of an unstable, of an unchanging nature is just as dynamic as something like the unchanging speed of light, uh, or Planck's constant, or things like that. And it's just that Aristotelian versions of nature are not things that are, out, are not external to a thing. They are internal to a thing, or at least when we're talking about the form and the matter of things. And so just as we treat the laws of nature in science as principles that help us to describe change, and to develop dynamic models of the world that we live in. So, if done properly, we can use nature as a kind of law that is interior to individual things, and that describes how those individual things can change. And we can use that inner law that we call nature to develop models of being on which we can then build models of operation. This notion of Aristotelian nature, built upon the notion of Aristotelian causation, can enrich our science by giving us a finer paintbrush with which we can paint the picture of the world in which we live. And what is more, if there is a reconfiguration of how nature is understood and how nature as a cause can be reintroduced back into the study of science, we will have a better epistemic grounding for the claims that science makes, because then we will have an unchanging feature which we can use in our models and which we can apply in our experiments to understanding what sorts of things we, we can predict and expect. So I'm going to conclude. So there's a lot in this lecture that I have necessarily left unsaid, some of them which are very big claims, uh, both in the historical claims I've made and in the metaphysical claims I've made. However, that's to some degree unimportant because my purpose tonight was not to present you with a convincing argument that all of you should be Aristotelians. I'm pretty sure that a lot of you are already convinced you should be anyway. But um, rather to show you why, how it is possible, how it is possible for an Aristotelian like myself and like others to use this very ancient philosophy and apply it to projects in our own day. And so, um, and in fact, it is important to note that many of the great scientists of past ages were philosophers, or at least in the modern age, had a very strong background in philosophy. And so I also think that it would be in one of the great tragedies of any modern science curriculum in university is that most people who are trained in the sciences will not be trained in philosophy. And, and if we can change that 
to teach our future scientists both how to reason and how to reason in Aristotelian matter, I think that we have we will have a more certain ground for our science and our scientific research. Thank you. I guess uh, the most uh, um, immediate objection to um, the Aristotelian view of nature seems to be the way evolution is usually explained, as you have this one type of creature, and then over time it's become this other type of creature, and there's this difference that Aristotelian nature doesn't seem to capture. Um, could you maybe give a, um, an Aristotelian response or, or revision, or yeah, response to that objection? Okay, so uh, the question is that one of the main objections to an Aristotelian worldview is the notion of evolution, and that seems hard to reconcile specifically with unchanging natures. Mm -hmm. Is that what would you say? Yeah. So that's a, that's a common, uh, of course, a common explanation. Now, there are several ways in which Aristotelians can get out of that. Um, it depends on how, how, what your interpretation of Aristotle is. So for instance, if you belong to the Avicenna school of Aristotelianism, right, you believe that the forms are probably exist in some separate mind, which is helping you to think anyway. So it might just kind of spin these forms out and give, and give new forms in various ages, you know, whenever they come about, right? So there's at least one way that Certain Aristotelians have done it. This is specifically interesting in the way that they handle um, handle spontaneous generation. Some of the ways that, if we look at the ways that Aristotelians handle the notion of spontaneous generation, which is found in Aristotle's works, you can actually apply that to an understanding of how species might develop over time, even if particular natures don't change over time. There is another way of approaching it um, Charles de Conic, an early 20th century philosopher at the University of Laval, proposed that really there are only three kinds of natures that you need to explain, plants, animals, and humans, right? And then you can probably explain um, the, the, the development of those you know, in terms of the prime mover, right? So he does it by trying to limit how much development there is, and then that makes Darwinian evolution look an awful lot more easily mappable onto Aristotelian stuff. Um, just because nature doesn't change doesn't mean that new natures can't come into existence, right? The question is, where do they come from, all right? And you could explain those in terms of powers and principles that the nature already has, and this is especially true if the, if the soul of, say, of the living thing um, is not an immortal soul. With immortal souls like those of humans, it's a bit more complicated, but human generation is just complicated in general on this view. So, but if you believe that there is a, a, a type of soul that is fully immersed in matter, then it can also, we can also see why the development of new material parts can be correlated with the development of new forms. So there are, and then that would just be the creation of a new form rather than changing of an old form. So these are not, strict answers, I'm just giving you possible ways in which we can go through it. Finally, um, it is notable that in evolutionary explanations, um, one of the great weaknesses, especially of, of kind of the neo-Darwinians, is that they can't help but try to explain natural selection in terms of final causes. So, and they, they try to, way to find a way to reduce that just to a mere linguistic consequence. However, it is, I think, notable that that in order to get natural selection running in the way that it should be, we are often we often resort to using final causation, and so that already implies that Aristotle is helpful even in that science. Uh, thanks, Father. That was a wonderful talk. A lot to think about. One of the most notorious of modern uh, science claims was Benjamin Libet's experiments a generation ago now where he claimed his, uh, his experiment proved there was no free will. Oh. And it had to do with citing certain activations in the brain, um, monitored by EEG, showing that a person had activation in that area of the brain before making the intent of pressing a button, yeah. which was how the experiment was right. So to me, modern science problem is not so much the the, the reproducibility is a problem, but also the overclaims 
Because in the generation subsequent to Lubin's paper, and the paper is supposedly one of the most cited in all of scientific literature, um, mostly against nowadays, uh, how do you, how would Aristotelian, Aristotelian approach guard against that, that overclaiming? Because there's an incentive there. He got a lot of notoriety. Notoriety gets funding mm -hmm. and tenure yes. and all the academic incentives. How how do you keep science within its lane, so to speak, from an Aristotelian perspective? Yeah. So and remind me of the name of the scientist again. Benjamin Livet, L-I-V-E-T. And so the question is about an experiment by Benjamin Livet who claimed to, um, I'm just repeating this for this here, that who claimed that um, he was able to prove that there was no free will. So part, so there are several things that are problematic there. Um, first of them, the first thing is like problem motivation, right? You want notoriety, so you get funding, so your experiments can continue. That's the problem that I was trying to address with the first part, right? That we have to, I mean, money is of course important, especially if you want to have really expensive scientific equipment, you know. And we philosophers tend to forget that. You know, there's a joke that says, you know, the provost of the university says, oh, I love the science and the math departments. They only ever ask me for money for pens, pens and pencils and, and wastebaskets. And then he pauses and he says, well, philosophers don't even ask for wastebaskets now that I think about it. <laughs> so, I mean, it is true, of course, that scientists um, need, need money to do their research, and it's, it's not cheap. And there's a reason why in previous ages, science was generally done among people in the leisure classes. Um, and so I don't quite know how to answer that particular problem, except that um, scientists, it would be helpful for scientists to realize that, to remember the reason why they do what they're doing, which is to wonder at the world and to try to come to know it. Now, how you develop like, you know, the, the moral quality to resist temptations to a purely mercenary view of that, that's a, that's a subject for a different topic, which is really about the kind of moral formation of scientists and the way of finding funding um, that doesn't depend upon the types of research that you produce. You know? So that's, a, that's actually a more political question in a way. So, um, but now as to the claims about make, about like, you know, for instance, Lewitt's claims that he was able to prove that we don't have free will, that's where I think the, um, the focus on developing proper logical models that take into account a material logic are important because most, more often, most often in those cases, what they end up doing is redefining the meaning of a term so that it can be easier to experiment on it. And that's, and that's where the problem lies. You need to find a way to connect our theoretical models with um, physical ex experiments. And it can't be done, as some people do, by trying to redefine something. It also can't often be done just by correlating certain non-physical attributes with certain physical attributes. There are a lot of questions in the philosophy of mind that worry about that. Uh, and so um, the way that an Aristotelian is going to respond is using kind of what we call a hylomorphic reasoning, right? Which is specifically looking at how nature is a combination of form and matter as a cause. And if you have a proper understanding of how form and matter act as a cause in the nature um, and how that then relates to our concepts, then you can use, I think, and this is something that needs a lot more development, but I think that you can use a material logic to then kind of help us to develop a bridge between our theories and the experiments that we use to prove our theories and to figure out which parts of our models just can't be proved by experiments. Because there are going to be some that can't be proved by experiments. And there are certain experiments that can't give us certain knowledge. And that's fine, right? But we need to be able to distinguish them. And the free will stuff and the question of the mind-body problem, I mean, that's, there's a lot going on there. But um, I do think that Aristotelians have a lot to say and that in a proper Aristotelian account can help us to develop better experiments to figure out what the correlation is there. Can you talk a little, a little bit more about the analogy between 
namely how you know there is a phenomenon, particularly in the modern day, with philosophical study of thoughts and reality originating in the self. Right? Yeah. Um, very Kantian idea, um, and it seems to me that this eventually takes to its logical conclusion leads to relativism, and then eventually nihilism. Obviously, yes, with a couple steps, but couple yes. Steps. <laughs> um, is there an analogous dynamic to this with science and the development and the study of science? Um, so, what do you mean? So, do you mean like is there an analogous way in which science starts in the mind rather than with the objects in the world? Right. And then we, and then at that point, we perhaps generate our own opinions about what is scientific truth. Um, we see this, I think. Some yeah. form, uh, especially with the pandemic, and then does that ultimately scientific knowledge? So there, there are some um, way, some interpretations, especially of how scientific progress works, that do do this. Specifically, the theory that scientific progress works in revolutions, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if and, the, and because built into the theory that scientific progress comes in in uh, in terms of revolutions, is that progress only happens within a certain uh, model and framework, and that when you have a revolution and you change models, then you have a different way of measuring progress, which means a different way of measuring our knowledge, which also means that, of course, anything outside of that model belongs to a different era, it's a different people. And behind that particular view, um, is an idea, it lurks to some degree Kant. It's really more actually Hegel that's behind there, who is of course related to Kant in that way. So there are interpretations specifically of what it means to have scientific progress and how we develop scientific models that are susceptible to a subjective point of view. Um, not all of them, you know, scientific, when it's done in the best way, is primarily objective, but uh, in its modeling and how we understand progress, we can slip into those uh, those problems, and then that that of course uh, brings up the specter of, politic of politicizing our science. Talking about uh, science as potentially uh, being used for purposes uh, bringing about a greater good versus uh, holding knowledge uh, for its own good. Why is it either for Aristotle or for us that holding knowledge for its own sake is better than what it can be used for? I know that it guards against perhaps uh, things that uh, errors in replication, but uh, assuming that there are no potential errors in replication, why is truth better than what truth can be used for? Okay, so the question is, why is truth better than what can be tr truth be used for? So there are actually two ways, two questions there that we can answer. Um, the first of them is that obviously truth for truth's sake would be more valuable than truth for the sake of something else, because then we just value it because of what it is, right? So like when you do something for the sake of another purpose, then the value of that thing is dependent upon the thing for the other thing that you're doing it for, right? But it seems to me part of what your question is, why should, you know, why should we care more about just what we know? Like how does our seeking after the truth make us better scientists? Would that be more like what you're something? So with that, you know, it's that, so presumably, right, if we get the world correctly, we're gonna be able to create really awesome stuff based upon that knowledge, right? Presumably even better. Um, but the reason why having that mentality and going into the research is so important is that you're no longer, you don't longer, you no longer care about whether or not you're impressing somebody else to get their funding. One of the big things about science is that you fail 95% of the time, maybe more, in your experiments, right? You put together an experiment and it proves Nothing, right? And so like, if you are doing it for any other purpose, right? people want results, so then they push the envelope, and then all of a sudden you start fudging numbers and you know, that sort of thing, right? So if we can approach science from the perspective that the pursuit of science is valuable in and of itself, then it won't matter if somebody is even going off down a crazy tangent, right? 
um, because at least they're trying to pursue knowledge. And if it doesn't produce anything, right, they're still trying to get at the truth. And we can, we can actually gain value from that because we can have a better understanding of the truth by seeing how other people pursue the truth without uh, being worried about what it's going to produce. That, that last point is a really interesting one. Thank you for asking that question. And I, mean, I think it applies to knowledge more broadly and not just natural sciences. I think there's a question of the purposefulness of the university today. Uh, Absolutely. Of what we're doing here. And so, um, I mean, I think that last question really gets at it. And it's, it's a kind of a question of emphasis. I mean, you can have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. You, know, you can have truth and use it for the purpose for which um, for which it exists, for which it exists, but that's that's the question that's kind of been axed. It's like, it's like, well, what do we use this for, as opposed to, what is the purpose for which, by its nature, it is to be used for, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's gone, and and that applies to all disciplines. To all disciplines, yeah. Right? And it's and it is actually, and I agree with you. I think that's a major. That's also a crisis in our universities and why the university is in, it, it, it has a problem is that people, especially, you know, a lot of parents, are, of course, wonder, worried about whether or not their children will be getting degrees that will get them jobs. And uh, and that's and that's a, a legitimate concern about parents. But the university, in my mind, should exist for the purposes of just understanding truth. And that, that has a value in and of itself. I want you all to get jobs, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, you know, there, there is like, you know, there is a purpose to the university that should be separate to that. And that will actually help you not only to get jobs, to actually live better lives and to be better people. It used to be that the ideal of the university was to give the, the full, well-rounded liberal arts education. But now, what I see is that there is a divergence that many academics seem to think that, um, and the public, I guess, that it's either one or the other. It's either a, a well-rounded liberal arts education or a, a stellar scientific, you know, talk about colleges who can well, um, I can't. <laughs> you know, I, 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 think, I think a lot about it, but I don't think I, I quite have the answers to it. And um, now that I am, you know, teaching in the seminary, I don't have to worry about these things. I'm not going to, uh, I don't want to make decisions for people that do have to worry about them. Because there are a lot of complicated issues that relate to why, for instance, public money is used for universities. Why parents, why people are paying exorbitant prices for university education, um, you know, and all that. So there's a lot of stuff going on there, um, and so, and then there's also another question of, you know, how do we like prepare people for jobs? So part of the reason why, you know, part of the reason why a lot of people in scientific degrees never take a philosophy class is they're too busy learning the basics they need to perform to be scientists, you know. Um, which is important because you know, you've got to be able to, uh, to, to be ready to do scientific research when you get out there. Um, the best university programs are able to give those, even those students a liberal arts education, um, but it is difficult. And um, too often the decisions about how the curriculum is decided are made based on money rather than on for instance, the, the, glory, the glory of truth, or even the benefit to the students. But I don't know how to solve that. So maybe that would be another talk, but not tonight. <laughs> um, could you say a little bit about what it means to do research outside of the university? So for, to do research for a job, that would be using research as a means to an end rather than an end in itself. Um, how can you, because I think a lot of jobs, <laughs> If you like require people to look for solutions to a problem, so how do you approach? Would you call that science, or how would oh. how would you approach that in a way that like? So, uh, so let me say. So, is your question like how would uh, so outside of the academic uh, um, context? Is it would I call? Like people who have uh, jobs that look for productive value, would I call that science? Mm -hmm. So, and do you mean by that 
um, people who are doing what we would recognize as scientific jobs? Or do you mean like, you know, um, say like, you know, a business person watching uh, the stock market or something like that? Um, I'm thinking more of the former. More um, of the former. Okay. Yeah. So like people who, who work for like Pfizer or Moderna or something like that, and are they doing science? So, um, I mean, yes and no, right? So there are, there are parts of, of, those, of those projects, the purely research parts would be where the science should actually be happening. You know, um, and then there are the productive parts, which are more like engineering. And you do have people that do jobs that are more engineering, that is science based, but not science in its more in its more pure sense of the speculative part of it. I'm not saying that what they're doing is not science in the sense that we use the term today, but it's not it's not the study of unchanging things that Aristotle provides. Now, any one of these kind of scientific research corporations will have room for all of these things. And in fact, other corporations do too. Think about how, for instance, I think Google is famous for this, about allowing their employees to spend five hours of their 40 hours a week, you know, doing some other project, right? You know, that's just, and now they're doing it because of course they want you to create something cool that they can sell to people. But there's also, but there's a recognition that you can do that better if you're just, wondering at the way the world is, right? So corporations and uh, which are trying to make money, right? Their reason for existence is of course, whatever it is that they are trying to do, trying to produce, but they can hire people whose reason for doing their job is just to know things. And if they let them do that properly, then that is, that's real science, I would say. And the others are scientific, but not science in the way that I'm looking at in the Aristotelian perspective. Um, uh, what is the value of non-practical knowledge? Of non-practical knowledge? It has value, well, if it's, if it's, if it's an honest good, if it's, uh, then it just should have value in and of itself, right? So part of this is based on Aristotle's theory of ethics, which is that, all, as Aristotle says, the beginning of the metaphysics, all humans by nature desire to know. And so it's valuable to us because we were made to know. Um, and so, you know, there's, it's hard, it, you can't really give another explanation for it other than that that's what we were made for and that's why we do it. And if there were another explanation, then it wouldn't be valuable in and of itself. It's, um,